1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Good to be with you. Excited for this first harvest night. It is going to be fun. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to First uh, Timothy. Grab your Bible, open up that app, whatever whatever you do to get to 1 Timothy. Uh, and so we're continuing our, our first, uh, or our, our sermon series, rather, through 1 Timothy. We've been calling it Blueprints uh, for the Household of God. And the idea is that if you're going to build something right, then you should have like some picture of what you're building. Right? Like that's what a blueprint is. It's to know, you should know what it looks like, how it should operate, uh, where things go, uh, how the parts fit together. Uh, like putting together Legos or putting together furniture from IKEA, building a home, all those things, right? Without a good and proper blueprint, you're not going to know if you're making a mistake along the way. And so 1 Timothy, in many ways, is like blueprints for God's church. You got uh, an apostle and pastor, Paul, writing to Pastor Timothy, encouraging him to stay on mission uh, and to go over, uh, he goes over God's plans for building a healthy church, blueprints for the household of God, and just shows him how the whole thing fits together. He goes over the role of leaders, the role of members, how we talk to each other, how we treat one another, he talks about how the gospel drives our mission, like all of that is the uh, book of First Timothy. And if you were here last week, he saw last week we looked at the primary charge, one of the primary charges, rather, uh, that are given to churches as a whole, but also given to pastors in particular, which is to protect and defend the true gospel from false gospels and false doctrine that creeps in. Because if we don't, if we, if we don't do that, then when false doctrines creep in, the foundation of the church gets disrupted. Your ability to understand and see the blueprint gets skewed, and you might end up with something that looks like this image. Uh, and so, what I, what I, you guys remember when I did this with like the first uh, uh, sermon? So, what I love about this is that these guys actually had a blueprint, right? Uh, but they didn't understand like how the whole thing fit together, <laughs> right? Like, look at the stairs. Um, they were only looking at the blueprint from one angle, right? They were trying to understand it only from one angle, and that's, that's what we're, we're going to unpack here. In the next few verses, we're going to look at the relationship between what's called the law and the gospel, all right, the law and the gospel. And if, you, and if you look at this from like the wrong angle, if you look at the law and the gospel from the wrong angle, you might, you might think that they're one and the same, which would be a mistake, as we'll see. But you also might think they're in opposition to one another, which would be another mistake. And so we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But first, I want you to take a look at our first couple of verses. Here's point number one. 
False teachers, the ones that we were talking about last time, these false teachers, they produce fruitless living. False teachers produce fruitless living. Verse 6 and 7 says this, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so when Paul says certain persons by swerving from these, what is he talking about? Take a uh, sneak a little peek over at verse 5, because really what he's doing here is he's just elaborating on the same point he made in verse 5. And in verse 5, he said, the aim of our charge as pastors is love. That's it. It's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what he's saying is that pastors and teachers in the church, they need to have love as their aim. They need to have love as their aim. And what does that look like? He says it comes from a pure heart. That means surrender to Jesus, a good conscience where motives are, our motives are pure too, uh, a sincere faith, meaning there's no hypocrisy, right? They're not just trying to impress people with the appearance of godliness on the outside, but they're actually wholeheartedly embracing all of Christ and all of life. And that love is a natural expression of God's grace in the life of a believer. If you think about it, love is like the one, the one attribute that we get to take with us into eternity. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. Because, you know, in eternity, faith will be no more. We're going to see face-to-face, faith or face-to-face. Like our faith will be replaced by sight. Hope will be no more in eternity because all that we've hoped for in this life will be finally fulfilled. But love, no, love is going to go on and on like Celine Dion, right? And so Paul says to Timothy, Look, we don't, we don't just want our people to be smarter. We don't want, just want them to be right and to know more things and to be more discerning, which we do want all those things, right? Because, because then they'll discern against false teaching and, and love the God like truly as he really is. But more than that, more than people in our churches just knowing a lot of right things, uh, we want to see lives transformed by God so that they are built up to love to love God and to love one another. In John 13, Jesus said the one thing that's going to show the world who belongs to him is the way that we love one another. And look, when pastors and teachers, when they swerve from this aim of love, verse 6, he says, this is what happens. Certain persons, by swerving from these when they swerve from a love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, by swerving from these, they have wandered away into vain discussion. So he says they wander into vain discussion. In other words, nothing good and meaningful and fruitful and productive comes out from the ministry of these teachers. This is like the guy who talks about like 
conspiracy theories all the time without any fruitful resolution, right? Like I had a buddy in college that would go like on and on about how uh, the moon landing was this big conspiracy. Uh, and I mean, whether or not like you believe that, it's like, dude, what am I supposed to do with that? Right? Like, whether it's true or not, like, nothing productive can come out of this conversation. And by the way, in, in my, like, I, I can't act on that, right? Like, by the way, in my experience, people who argue about the Bible all the time, like, which, again, there's a time and a place for that, right, where you got to contend for truth. But when you, like, obsess over being right, when you obsess over your rightness, that's usually, in my experience, that's usually a sign of, like, broken character, Something shifty going on beneath the surface. If you have so much time, if you have so much time to argue uh, in, in fruitless doctrine, then you probably just don't have enough time to actually live it out. It's like when, when guys, like, they, they get into these, these, these arguments, right? Like whenever you're around ta- talking about doctrines and things like that. And it's like guys who like to argue and say, like, look, man, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything bad. I'm just, I'm just playing devil's advocate, Right? Like, dude, when guys say that, I want to be like, okay, say that again, but slower. <laughs> Devil's advocate, right? Uh, don't do that. Um, so he says, uh, Paul continues in verse 7. He says, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So let's talk about this. Like, a lot of people... A lot of people, they want to be teachers. And just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. We need more people who like want to know how to teach and how to teach well. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between a non-qualified, non-anointed teacher and one that is qualified and anointed to teach God's word. Who, a person who actually has to give an account for your soul. Like in James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Did you know that there is a group of people that the Bible says will be judged more greatly on the day of judgment? And that group of people is teachers. Though who have presumed, I want to preach God's word. Like guys like me are going to be judged more strictly. Bible says that, that Bible teachers and Sunday preachers, especially like when we gather on the Lord's Day like this, guys who preach have the responsibility to dig into the text and to mind out sound teaching to make sure that you're receiving teaching and doctrine that is true, that is good, that is faithful and worthwhile. They go deep into the scriptures in a trustworthy manner to help you view the scriptures rightly. And when that doesn't happen, when we don't do that, when pastors don't do that, what ends up happening is people are misled, doctrine is misapplied in our lives, and that leads to just destruction in different areas of life. I think that's why I have like gray hairs coming in all over the place, right? You got to work hard over the scriptures. You have to be prepared before you walk up here. And look, I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you need to rely on a preacher in order to understand the Bible. Just to be clear, not what I'm saying, right? When you're alone with your Bible, you can trust that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to open your eyes to behold wonderful truths in the Word, to see Jesus more clearly. What I am saying is that when pastors and teachers come up before a congregation like this, filled with the Spirit, the point is not for 
guys like me to spout off our opinions and hot takes, but to, to handle the word of God carefully because the goal of preaching is to lead an entire body of believers together in living for God and living for bringing glory to God, good growth to one another and the good of others. It's the binding authority that comes with that kind of teaching. And the problem that Paul says is that some people, they desire to be teachers. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't really understand what they're talking about. They're not trained. They didn't do the work. They're just running their mouths. They're just saying things that make people feel good, but it's not actually like real uh, preaching coming from the word. And he says they're making confident assertions. Now, just because someone speaks with authority doesn't mean that their words actually have authority. Right? So my job, our job, is to point you to God's word because that's where the authority is, to unpack the text in the spirit of love and help you see, see it and know how to respond. Number two, we see in this text that God's law helps us, but it doesn't save us. God's law, it helps us, but it doesn't save us. The false teachers, you see, their problem is that they don't see the true nature and function of God's law. In verse 8, it says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so it's important for you to see here that the New Testament is not anti-law, all right? It's not anti-law. It says the law is good. It's a gift from God, provided that we understand it properly, you may have heard, um, like, if you got any friends or, or family members that, like, are, are, are atheists or uh, maybe, maybe come from, like, more liberal, like, Christian denominations. I'm not talking liberal politically. I'm talking about, like, li like liberal in terms of the way they understand the scriptures and how it fits together. Um, but if you have any family members or friends, like, from that camp, they'll may say things like, like, you know, the Bible's ridiculous because the God's laws are ridiculous, right? You look at all of the, the Old, Old Testament laws, and it says, like, not to eat shellfish and not to have have a thread from, you know, two different, two different kind of sources, like blended together and like all, all of these different, different things, right? As a matter of fact, there was a guy named uh, A.J. Jacobs. Uh, he was an author. He had this best-selling book in 2007 uh, called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. And really his goal was to make a mockery out of the Old Testament laws. And in the course of a year, a fascinating year, uh, this guy, he tried to obey literally the 700 plus commands that he finds in the Bible, including all the things about animal sacrifices, what to wear, what to eat. Uh, so apparently, like, taking the Bible literally uh, is what he was doing, but, but not taking it seriously. Now, how do we make sense of this, right? Because we know that there's lots of laws in the Old Testament uh, that we don't apply to ourselves today. So how do we know which laws apply and which ones don't? Glad you asked, right? So we're going to do uh, a, a little bit of uh, theology work here. All right? And I think it's important for you to understand this. Because he says here that the law is good, after all, if we use it lawfully. That means that you should be able to read the Old Testament and find principles for a life in Christ today. All right? When Jesus appeared to two disciples on the Emmaus Road, he said, and beginning with Moses... It's, or the scriptures say, in the beginning with Moses, that Jesus showed them all the things in the Old Testament scriptures that were concerning himself. That means that starting with the Old Testament and all of its laws, Jesus showed these two guys, he showed them how it all pointed to him. 
And so you need to grow to the point to where you can read Leviticus, to where you can read Leviticus and see Jesus there, to where you can read Deuteronomy and see Jesus there. Look, the law points to Jesus, but in different ways. Now, Christians have understood this um, from the earliest Christian scholars. Uh, We've talked about the three-point division of God's law. The three-point division of God's law. In other words, when we see uh, any law or command in the Bible, it falls under one of three categories. The first category is ceremonial laws, right? Now, these are laws about the priesthood, animal sacrifices, details about the temple, uh, about cleanliness, like cleanliness and purity and so on. The second category of laws is what we might call civil laws, right? Those are laws that have to do just, that had to do with just governing, the governing of Israel as a nation. And lastly, we had moral laws. Moral laws, these are transcendent principles that are part of the law, but they also transcend the law. Best understood is the Ten Commandments, right? The big ten, the commands that forbid things like rape and theft and murder and idolatry. And so uh, the moral laws are basically anything concerning the Ten Commandments or any other command or law in Scripture that basically repeats what the Ten Commandments have already said in the beginning. Now, just to be clear, Jesus fulfills all three, all right? He fulfills all three. He fulfilled the ceremonial laws because he is our sacrifice. He is our high priest. His body itself is the temple that was broken uh, so that we could be in the presence of God. He is the cleanser who cleanses us from our sin. And because the whole point of all of those ceremonial laws was to point to Jesus in the first place, now that Jesus has come, they've been fulfilled and they're no longer binding on us, right? Um, um, That's why we're not doing uh, uh, animal sacrifices tonight, right? Like, that's not why we came to harvest night. We're not not doing that, right? So not that kind of harvest. And so uh, uh, next, he fulfills the civil law. He fulfills a civil law because he is our king and his kingdom transcends national identities, right? And so like the, the, uh, the Christian religion, the Christian faith is no longer a national faith, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus was both for the Jew and the Greek. In other words, God's Old Testament people and everyone else. He's for the rich and the poor. The nation of Israel, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, has actually been replaced in the New Covenant by spiritual Israel, the New Testament church. We are spiritual Israel. God's people are no longer a theocracy, a geographic nation. And so all of those civil laws, while they're insightful, uh, they're not binding on us. And that's why the New Testament book of Romans uh, in chapter 13 says that, that we are to obey even our pagan government because God can work through it too, right? And lastly, Jesus fulfills the requirements of the moral law, the Big Ten. How did he do that? By living a sinless life in our place. But see, even though he fulfilled those laws, because the moral laws, as we said, are reflections of God's character and nature, and, and, and nature because they, they, even though they're part of the law, they transcend the law. Like things, uh, like commands that say we shouldn't have any idols, that we should set aside a day for rest and worship, 
that we shouldn't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't sleep with someone you're not married to, right? Like all of those laws are still binding on Christians today. They're still useful for us today. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse um, 19 through 10, or sorry, 9 through 10, um, I'm going to read this really quick. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, when we were reading that earlier in the scripture reading, like, you're probably doing what I was doing, which is like, whew, right? <laughs> like, we have to go through this list. Uh, and it's true. And part of the, our preaching philosophy here is that, like, you know, like, we, we go verse by verse because it, it kind of forces us to even deal with and get into um, uh, some of the, the verses and teachings that are um, maybe, like, culturally unpopular, uh, things that I, like in my own sin, would, and just my own desire for comfort, right, and to not shake the boat too much, to like want to just skip over, right, or just give like a summary. But um, I, don't, I don't think it'd be helpful for us to do that here. And so let me go through this list. And what you'll see here is that this list is basically um, just outworkings of the Ten Commandments. You'll see every single in every single one of them that, that you could think of one of the Ten Commandments that these would fall under. And so these are under the moral law. And so uh, he says uh, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, that word lawless um, basically has to do with any person who breaks legal restrictions, right? Uh, and anyone who like breaks God's law. Disobedient uh, refers to somebody who's like insubordinate. In other words, they just their heart and their posture is they just don't they don't submit to anything, right? Uh, they hate authority, even good authority. Uh, ungodly uh, means uh, like a lack of reverence for God, having no moral conviction. Sinners, that word sinners has to do with somebody who has committed to a lifestyle of rejecting the Lord and what he says, right? So obviously, like, we're all sinners, right? But, like, when he says sinners here, this is somebody who's, like, committed to a lifestyle uh, that rejects God and his ways. Uh, unholy. Basically, um, this is, is somebody who is, um, does not want to be, like, separated uh, but rather just kind of go with the times, go with the, the flow of the culture, with the world, not set apart. That's what the word holy means, is set apart. Profane, in other words, irreverent, no respect for God or the things of God. Strike their fathers and mothers, right? Like that, that relates to uh, the commandment to honor your father and mothers, right? In other words, there's no respect for um, authority here. Uh, and it's actually uh, in, in overreach to where it's not, you not only don't respect authority, but that you're actually abusive against authority. Murderers, pretty, pretty straightforward there. Cold-blooded killing, right? Now, sexually immoral, that phrase sexually immoral in the original Greek is the word porneia, right? Um, where we get the word pornography from, right? And basically, porneia refers to everything that we do um, sexually that is outside um, what God has designed for human flourishing, 
right? So this is like the junk, junk drawer word for all of sexual sin, right? So porneia includes sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, sex with somebody who you're not married to, right? Committing adultery, like all of that is con, uh, 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 under this term of sexually uh, immoral. And what's interesting is he makes a distinction here between porneia and homosexuality. Uh, and the next one, he says men, uh, and that could be men or women, uh, who practice homosexuality. Um, now, why does he do that here? Like, why does he, why does he say porneia and then, like, single out uh, homosexuality? Now, don't get mad, right? Like, I'm just, I'm just delivering the mail, all right? So, uh, and just to be clear, like, I have currently, I currently have friends who struggle with same-sex attraction, right? Um, and this is, this is not what's being talked about here. Like, this is not talking about an inclination or a desire or being attracted to somebody of the same sex. This is somebody who practices the act. In other words, those who indulge in what the Bible calls sin. And I understand, I understand that this is like not a popular uh, take for us uh, to have uh, in the 21st century. But we live in a culture that's like trying to normalize um, all things related to sex as something that's casual and not sacred. Something that we indulge in for ourselves and not to serve others and for the sake of like human flourishing. And look, like we, we want to be a culture and a church of love and grace and acceptance and welcoming. But like, but we're not going to cater to the cultural, uh, to the whims of the culture. And so as Christians, like, look, we don't believe that kids should be able to choose their own gender, right? Like, I can identify as a 6'2 man all I want. That doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't make it true. We don't believe in encouraging your kid to swing the other way for the other team, right? If you know what I mean. We don't think children should be encouraged to practice safe sex. Like we tell them to practice married sex one day, right? And it's not because we're prudes. It's not because we're prudes, but it's because we actually view sex with greater esteem, as greater value than the culture does, right? That like we don't just see it as fun. I mean, we do see it absolutely as fun, but it's not only fun. It's also sacred. It's a gift to steward, a gift from God to steward as his people. And here's what you need to know, that we will not cater to sinful and delusional generation. But at the same time, we're, we're not enemies with them. We're committed to love people in it and to love people through it and see that there's like a greater plan for humanity and human flourishing for our joy and for the good of others. Moving on, Paul says, enslavers. Enslavers, these were people that would like kidnap people, take them out of their homes and then enslave them. Now, you might hear, again, from critics of Christianity, like, well, doesn't the Bible talk about, like, slavery and have these different, um, like, uh, you know, like, if, if, you're, if you're a slave, here's how you just treat your master and things like that. And just to be clear, there's different kinds of slavery in the Bible, all right? Um, the kind of slavery, uh, like, there was willing slavery in the New Testament, right? So it's not what we think of because of the transatlantic slave trade. Like, it's not what we think of uh, when we hear that word slavery, all right? Uh, when you see the New Testament talk about slavery, like in uh, uh, Philemon and other places. Um, there's willing slavery in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. 
and man, that's a whole conversation, but listen, um, anytime that you are taking someone from their home and treating them as property rather than the dignity that they deserve uh, as, as somebody who's made in the image of God, like that's wicked. That's wicked. All people are created equal and with value and dignity and worth because every human being is made in the image of God. He says liars and perjurers. That's anybody that gives false testimony. And then he says whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, anything else that doesn't sound right uh, to the gospel, anything that doesn't sound right to the Bible, right? And that word sound, that word sound doctrine, uh, in the Greek, that word sound has to do with hygiene, all right? So in other words, these commandments are here in your life because Jesus wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be spiritually healthy. He wants you to be spiritually alive. He wants his church to be healthy. My, uh, my neighbor a few months ago was talking to me about uh, this, this rat problem that he was having. He's got like all these traps like set up. Uh, and, and some of them had like claws and some of them had poison. And uh, he pulls me aside and he's like, hey, did you see my new traps? And he's like talking about them and like this problem and how he's trying to fix it. And, and he, he starts talking about the new like poison traps, right? And he's like, yeah, I got these and it's got this kind of poison. And the way it works is like they taste it uh, and they smell it and it smells good to them. They taste it, they eat it, uh, and then just destroy them from the inside out. And I'm like, okay, dude. Uh, But look, that's the danger of false doctrine. It can destroy a local body from the inside out. You smell it, you taste it, you eat it, you feast on it, and before you know it, it's destroying you from the inside out. Now, if you look back at verse 9, Paul said, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Um, now, some people interpret that verse as saying that the law is not for Christians, but it's only for non-Christians. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right now, that's not true, okay? Uh, and I'll show you how in a second. We, it's basically like we, we all need the law. All right? We all need the law. When you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you become righteous, and the Holy Spirit comes inside you, and now you've got a guide, you've got a helper uh, for how we can live out God's truth. It's kind of like uh, if you think of like a righteous kid and an unrighteous kid, right? Like, like some, some kids just know how to stay out of trouble, right? But then some kids, right, like other kids need the law. They need rules so that they know what they can and can't do. Right, And so let's talk now about how Christians should view the law, all right? Um, Here's how you should use the law lawfully, because that's what Paul said, right? Like the law is good, provided you use it lawfully. So how do you use the law lawfully? The purpose of God's law is all over Scripture, Um, and this is kind of another theology lesson for you, all right? We talked about the threefold division of God's law. Uh, Now we're going to talk about the three uses of the law. Here are the three uses of the law. Uh, The first use of the law is to restrain evil, to restrain evil, right? This use of the law applies Uh, to unbelievers, like we saw in verses 9 through 11, but it also serves as a restraint for Christians. It helps us to recognize boundaries between good and evil so that we can avoid evil. And if you think about it, that's how, like, laws typically work today, right? Like, why do we have speed limit signs? 
Why do we have speed limit signs? It's because there are reckless drivers that need to be restrained. Nobody here, of course, right? But they're out there, right? You've probably seen them, right? Like the reckless drivers that, that need to be restrained. Speed limit laws are there to say, uh, hey, look, if you cross this line, if you go at this speed and you're driving dangerously, you might hurt yourself and you might hurt others, right? Um, Paul says this in Romans 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, the law helps us see when we've crossed the line. It helps us know the difference between good and evil, right? I was thinking about uh, this point, and I started thinking about my youngest son, right? He right now is in this uh, season where he just loves sticking his finger up his nose, right? Sorry if that's gross. I'm just here to tell the truth, right? He loves, sticks his finger up his nose. And suddenly, uh, uh, like, I, I, I start, I, I look at him. And we you know, look at him in, in, in the eyes, and I, and I look at him, like, looking at his finger. And so I say what any good parent would say. I say, like, no, do not put that thing in your mouth, right? Do not put your finger in your mouth. That's laying the law down, right? That's restraining evil, the point that we're making here. Uh, yeah, three seconds later, where's his finger? In his mouth, right? Law broken. That's us. Right? We need the law to know the difference between good and evil, to know when we've crossed the line, when we've broken it. The next purpose of the law is to be to serve as sort of like a mirror for us. All right? So on the other hand, the law of God reflects and mirrors to us what God's holiness looks like. God's law reflects to us what his righteousness looks like. It shows us who God is and how we've disobeyed him. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, the law is a hammer that crushes the self-righteous of human beings. It shows them their sin so that by the recognition of their sin, they may be humbled, frightened even, and worn down, and so may long for grace, which they find in Christ. The law is our schoolmaster or like a teacher that brings us to Christ. So the law reveals to us how we've broken God's law. And at the same time, the law leads us to Christ as the great law keeper. We, really, we realize because of the law that we're condemned. And we're condemned before a holy God, but Jesus has perfectly kept the law in our place. He's the righteous human the only righteous human who perfect, and who's always perfectly accepted before God. And so if we have any hope of being made right with God in spite of our sin, who do we need? Jesus. Jesus. The law doesn't save us. Jesus does. Right? That's why elsewhere in like Romans 7, like you have uh, Paul saying like, man, I keep sinning. Right? He's really honest. And we can, we can read Romans 7 and be like, man, I can so resonate with this because like he describes the Christian life. He's like, man, I always find myself sinning. Like I know what I should do, but I'm not doing it. I know what I shouldn't or I know what I, I, I shouldn't do. And I'm, and I'm doing that. Right? And I, I, it's just constant tension, this constant battle. And then uh, he, almost comically, like he ends Romans 7 by just going like, oh, but you know, thankful for God's grace. Thankful for God's grace. Thankful for his forgiveness and his mercy. You see, the problem with false teachers is that they'll often emphasize the law. 
Like they'll overemphasize the law and say like, no, you must do this in order to be a Christian. Or they'll add to the law and they'll say like, you know, you must believe these things and you also must like never drink a sip of alcohol. You must never have a relationship with this kind of a friendship with this kind of person. You must live in this uh, kind of place or whatever, right? You add all these extra laws to it or the false teacher will go in the other direction and just ignore the law altogether and say, you can live however the heck you want because of God's grace. But no, the law understood rightly, understood lawfully, is like a mirror to us. It reveals to us God's character. It reveals to us his nature. It shows us when we've crossed the line. And lastly, the law shows us how to live now that we're saved. It shows us how to live. As followers of Jesus who want to honor him with our lives, the law tells us, what, what do we now do? Look, as born again children of God, the law shows us what is pleasing to God. It's the highest function of God's law to serve as a guide for the people of God and how to live for his honor and for his glory. Like think of the law as like a family code, right? Like Christ was talking about this use of the law when he, when he told us that when we make disciples, we teach them what he commanded us to do. Or in John 14, when Jesus said, look, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And to be clear, again, the law doesn't save us. Obedience does not make you a Christian. And if anyone tells you that, then you got to run the other way. The law doesn't save you, but the law does show you that you need to be saved. And it shows you how to be saved by turning to Christ. And that when you come to him, his spirit will help you now walk in obedience. And this leads us to our last point, point number three, faithful teaching always leads to the gospel. Look at what verse 10 and 11 says. He says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, good teaching, faithful teaching is always going to be in step with the good news that displays the glory of God. Everyone knows, everyone, like regardless of your religion, regardless of your background, regardless of your faith upbringing, everybody knows that there is right and wrong, that there is good and evil. And if someone says, obey these laws and God will save you, they don't understand the law. If someone says, live however you want because the law doesn't matter, they don't understand the law. But when someone comes and says, look, you can never earn your way into God's kingdom. And so turn to Christ, trust in him alone, walk away from your old self and live as someone who's been freed from your old ways by the power of the gospel. When someone says that, that person understands both the gospel and the law. So there's just one, sometimes I like end these sermons with like a few practical points, like here's how you now respond to this. For texts like this, it's just one practical point. Just know that the law does not save you. Know that the law does not save you and make you right with God. Christ alone saves. But he saves you into a new life that expresses who you were meant to be. You're not the solution to your sin. You're not the solution to your law-breaking. Jesus is. 
Jesus, he kept the law. He fulfilled the law. It's his righteousness that we need. It's his holiness that we need. It's him paying the penalty of your sin on the cross that makes you right with God. Nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can do. And so all that we do for God is in response to the gospel, out of gratitude for the gospel. You can never earn your way into the gospel. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good news for us. Because you'd either think too highly of yourself because you'd be like, man, I really, I really hit the mark, right? I, I, really, I really meet the requirements. Or you'll be crushed because, because you'll feel like, man, I can never measure up. God will never accept me. No, the gospel tells us that we are fully known in all our mess, in all our junk, in all our waywardness, and yet we're fully loved in Jesus Christ. When we don't understand that, we haven't understood what Paul calls the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So know that the law doesn't save you and make you right with God. Jesus does. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.